Well, what an amazing story. I want you to think about other people that you would normally meet on a Sunday, uh, that you'd go up and say hi to, give them a hug. Why don't you send them a virtual hug right now and send a little prayer up to God for them? Because the, the loss of sense of community because we don't meet together as a family uh, is difficult and it'll change soon, hopefully, but just send a, a virtual hug to somebody in the congregation that you miss seeing. You remember that the Bible talks about uh, Thomas. Remember Thomas? He, we'll meet him in chapter 20, but he's called Doubting Thomas because he struggled with uh, belief in who this man Jesus really was and is. And at the end of uh, when Jesus had risen from the dead and revealed himself to Thomas, Thomas had said, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my uh, fist into his side, I will not believe. And, and then Jesus appeared to him and showed him his hands and his feet. And, and Thomas uh, worshipped him, worshipped him, called him Lord. And Jesus said these words, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I have not seen Jesus risen from the dead, have you? No. Millions of Christians around the world today, they believe without seeing, but one day we will see him face to face with Christ my Saviour, what a wonderful day that will be when we meet him face to face. And believing is seeing is the topic I'd like to uh, use for this, this message today on John chapter 9. You see, in today's narrative, one who was born blind acted in faith when Jesus sent him to the pool of Siloam. And that faith, without seeing, uh, led him to be healed, and then his faith developed into a complete faith where he worshipped the Lord Jesus himself. And that's contrasted to the Pharisees who saw the man healed, but they did not believe. And so the saying, believing is, I mean, sorry, the saying, seeing is believing, is uh, uh, commonly used, but in this story, we find that believing is seeing. Now, we read in verse 1 that Jesus passed by. He was, uh, it, it, there's no, the, the chapter break between chapter 8 and 9 is not in the original. That was put in later. So it really is a continuing story. And as he passed by, he saw this man who was blind. And uh, we find a, an incredible story here of a man born blind who was healed by Jesus. And I'd like to first point out that it was an undeniable miracle. Uh, there was no doubt about it. This man was healed and that was so miraculous. Our uh, friend has a daughter who married a couple of years ago and they've just had a little child and the little boy has been born blind. And it's so heart-wrenching. Uh, but she loves, they both love that little child so much. But the, the, the thought that that child who was born blind and grew up and would grow up 
and become a man uh, would one day have sight again is absolutely miraculous. And, and that's what happened here. Jesus saw this man and rather than just heal him, many times we read in the Gospels that Jesus just spoke the word and people were healed. But he sent the man to the pool of Siloam. And that was an act that caused the man to engender faith in him. And that faith then led him to believe ultimately, eventually, that Jesus was the Son of God. He acted in faith to actually leave there and walk blinded, still down, down the steep pathway to the pool of Siloam. Jesus had taken some dirt and he had put spittle in the dirt and made mud out of it and he plastered it on the eyes of the man. And it reminds me of Genesis chapter 1 where God took soil and made, created Adam and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And I think there's a connection there between these, those two events. Christ the creator, Jesus Christ, recreated the eyes of this man born blind. So the people were amazed. Here was this man who was known in the area and he was begging always for food and for money so that he could survive because he had no other means and uh, they knew him well. And yet here he was walking, running probably, jumping for joy as he came back up uh, for the first time, the voices were attached to actually mouths that he could see. And the birds in the trees that were singing, he could look up and see them. And the wind rustling the leaves in the tree. He could hear it prior to gaining his sight, but now he could see it. He could see an amazing thing. And the people were absolutely astounded. But they were also perplexed. And they said, well, this must not be the man. It must be a different man, surely. And we read that this blind man now who could see said, no, it's me. It's me. It really is me. It happened. But then questions arose. Questions arose in their minds. First question was, well, what about it being the Sabbath? Jesus made mud pies. It was lawful for um, people to spit on the Sabbath believe it or not, they had so many rules and laws, especially regarding the Sabbath. And, and uh, suspects one thing, but to make a mud pie out of it and put it on the man's, um, on the man's uh, eyes was against the law. So he said, what are you doing working on the Sabbath? You, it raised that huge question. But we see Jesus' compassion over the strict rules of the day. And remember that he said elsewhere in the Gospels, uh, in Mark 2, for instance, it says that he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus, we have records of seven miracles that Jesus did on the Sabbath. And that's just some, those are the ones recorded. There's probably others as well. And so he responded to this question of why would you heal somebody or do something on the Sabbath? That must mean that you're not from God. And he responded by saying, we must work the works of him who sent us while it is day. Or I must work those works. 
because night comes when no one can work. He had a short period of time and he was there to do that work. And he said, I'm the light of the world. And here's a man who needs light. And so I gave him light. And that is a, a personal message to all of us, isn't it? We today, whoever we are, must work the works of him who sent us into the world to preach the gospel, to, to share with our neighbours, to help one another, encourage one another, to build one another up. And all that God calls us to do, he's gifted us, he's called us to serve him and we must work while it is day. There's a time coming when you will no longer be able to, I will no longer be able to serve in this life. And uh, then it's the time for rewards and heaven in the future. So we must work the works of him who sent us as Jesus said about himself. The second question that was raised from this undeniable miracle was the question of cause. What caused this man to be blind? Many thought back then, in fact, most people thought and it was taught them that blindness was a direct connection with sin. Other diseases and complications and conditions that people had uh, were not necessarily tied to sin, but blindness was, especially blindness from birth. In, in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, we read that the, the sins of the fathers will be meted out on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so they took that verse and they applied it in this way and said, therefore, this man must have sinned. In fact, it says either who sinned, him or his parents or him? Well, how could a fetus in the womb sin? But they believed, this is what they believed, that in the womb, a fetus, a, a, an unborn baby, uh, had an inclina two inclinations. One was to good and one was to bad. And if the baby uh, was uh, inclined more to the bad and and kicked really hard. You know, every one of you mums know what it's like to be kicked by a baby before it's born. And I remember feeling Marg's tummy when she had, a, uh, both times we had children uh, kicking. But when it was an extra hard kick, um, maybe it's because that child is, is inclining to bad, not to good. That was their thinking. And so that's why the disciples asked uh, that question. So what is the cause of suffering and, and, and is it tied to sin? Well, the Bible teaches that we live in a sinful world because of Adam and Eve and down through history, a uh, sinful world means suffering world. Suffering, death, disease all came as a result of sin. But not necessarily, in fact, it's not due to personal sin except in a few circumstances. Uh, we read uh, the verses that I read earlier in Exodus 34 where God acts in discipline to his nation Israel um, and meters out judgment to the third and fourth generation. But also in 1 Corinthians 11, we read that when people take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way and not honor the Lord in the way they do it, that some uh, were, uh, they had... Uh, 
disease or they, they, they had a condition, a, me, a medical condition, or some even slept, some even died. Uh, and so it can happen. But uh, the, the real cause of sin, of, of suffering, is the sinful world we live in. And God looks forward and causes us to look forward to a time when he will uh, turn everything around and he will create a new heavens and a new earth when, wherein dwells righteousness. The next question that was asked was how? This unbelievable miracle that Jesus uh, performed, how? And three times in this passage, different ones ask, how, how did it happen to you, to the man, the man who was healed? I remember back in 1983, uh, I, I was very interested in David Copperfield, who was a well-known and still is a well-known illusionist. And he caused things to disappear and, and appear again and so on. And, and he had this massive big uh, event where he got on live television with uh, watching as he caused the Statue of Liberty to disappear in New York. And you could see it. Uh, I watched. I was absolutely amazed. It, it was gone. And, and where it was was still there. Uh, you could see, but it, it had gone. And then he caused it to reappear. And everybody, including myself, asked, how? How did he do that? Well, of course, now you go to Google and you Google it and it explains how he actually caused that to happen as an illusion. But for Jesus and this miracle, it was not an illusion. It was an absolute miracle, uh, a, a person with a hopeless condition who was instantaneously healed. Now with that, or if you like, attached to that undeniable miracle was what I would call an unavoidable message. Unavoidable. You cannot avoid the message that comes from that. You see, in John's Gospel especially, all the miracles of, of Christ are called signs because they are a signal, a sign to who Jesus really is. And this of all the miracles was one that really pointed to him as being the Messiah. So to the Pharisees, to the Pharisees, they knew the implication of this miracle, that Jesus must be from God, but they didn't want to believe that. You see, healing blindness was regarded as a, a miracle that only Messiah would do. In, in uh, Isaiah 29, verse 18, the deaf will hear and the blind will see. And those very words are repeated in chapter 35. And then in chapter 42 in Isaiah, we read, he will open the eyes of the blind. And so for the uh, Pharisees and for all the Jews of that day, they were looking forward to Messiah coming and they saw the um, healing of a blind man as one of those miracles that would show that Messiah would had come, that he would do those miracles. In fact, there were three miraculous um, signs that they called messianic miracles that only Messiah would do. One was to heal a leper. Uh, one was to cast out a deaf, mute demon. And one was to heal a person 
not just blind, but blind from birth. And none of those had been performed within the Jewish community from day one. Never been known. In fact, for the miracle that Jesus, we're talking about here in John chapter 9, uh, it had never been, it never happened from creation right through to then. Never once had it happened. And so they believed that this must be uh, Messiah or they had to discredit him. So they set out to discredit him and deny the miracle. Today, we have the same kind of situation where people are faced with the truth, are faced with arguments to justify belief in God and belief in Jesus Christ risen from the dead and so on. And people have a choice whether to believe or not. And very often they seek to discredit what is revealed to be truth and set out to do that. In fact, some of the greatest apologists, that is people who are Christians who, who defend the faith and give good arguments to support a person's belief, they started out setting out to discredit Christianity. C.S. Lewis is a famous one that you may have heard of or read his books. Or Frank Morrison wrote the, the book, Who Moved the Stone? Setting out to discredit the resurrection and put the last nail, as he said, in the coffin of Jesus, uh, he ended up writing a book defending the faith and proving that Jesus was risen from the dead, showing all the evidence. Lee Strobel, the case for Christianity, the case for Christ, uh, is another one. But for the Pharisees, they refused the evidence. They, they opposed what they saw to be true, they did not want to believe. Then the unavoidable message also came to the parents. They faced the reality of what had happened. They knew that the Pharisees had called them to check out whether he was genuinely born um, blind because that might have been a way out. If, if, if they could discredit that story, well, then they wouldn't have to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And these uh, parents, they said, well, he's our son. And yes, he was born blind. So he removed that obstacle from them. And so they, however, wouldn't say who healed or how Jesus was healed because of fear of what would happen because the, they knew and obviously everybody knew that the Pharisees had said, that if anyone confesses that Jesus is the Christ, then he would be or she would be desynagogued is the word. When people did something that was against the law or that the, was not acceptable uh, to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they had three kinds of discipline. The first one was to rebuke them publicly. The second one was to cast them out, which was like a minimum of 30 days. They would be out of the synagogue. They couldn't come and worship. They couldn't be involved in anything religious or anything like that. But the third one, and the word that's used here is to be de-synagogue. That's really what the word means in the original. They were to be treated like foreigners. They were outside, thrown out of the community. They lost their jobs very often. 
they were regarded as dead. And that was what they feared would happen to them so they would not confess that Jesus had healed this man. Today, it's no different. There's incredible pressure to conform. I think of young people and young adults who leave the sheltered environment of a, a loving community of a church like this and sometimes uh, from a school that is a Christian school and a Christian family and they go to college or university, they, they go into work and they move away from home and the pressure to conform to the world's thinking and to reject those beliefs or certainly uh, say nothing about those beliefs that they were brought up to believe is incredible pressure. And we, we learn of, uh, at the moment, we hear about cancel culture. And if you don't conform to the world's way of thinking about whatever it might be, then you are sidelined. Your targets in social media and in society. Following Christ within the church community is easy, relatively easily. But Jesus said, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. There's a natural fear that people might have when they uh, face the reality of what is out there and they try to connect with friends and, and, and colleagues and, and uh, others in the class at the university or where, wherever it might be. Uh, but tolerance, tolerance is uh, our country believes that we're a tolerant society, but only if you agree to a narrow set of views that's permitted in the public square. George Orwell says, the, the further a society drifts from truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. So some are like the parents here who fear and because of that they pull back. The next one, who the message of the reality of this miracle got through to was the man himself, the healed man. And we have his personal testimony. How could he deny what had happened to him? Um, he did not have all the answers. They asked him, they probed him, they pushed him. But he says, one thing I do know, that once I was blind, but now I see. It's wonderful when you meet a Christian who has that kind of experience. They, they become a believer. They receive the Lord Jesus. And they don't have all the arguments when they meet their friends and family after that has happened. But their experience of Christ and the change that occurs in their lives means they can say, well, I don't understand. I don't have all the answers, but all I know is that he has changed my life. He's come into my life and transformed me. And, and you know, that personal testimony has, is extremely powerful. And we should share our testimonies with those who we come across and, and meet and those that we have connections with in our workplace or our neighbourhood. 
But secondly, we see not only his personal testimony, but his reasoning. He was both logical and bold. When he was faced with the uh, questioning and the challenges of the Pharisees, he reminds them of their own theology. Let me read it to you again. He said, Why? This is an amazing thing that you do not know where this man comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will and listens to him, God listens to him, sorry. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What incredible logic and uh, boldness to face these people who were going to throw him out of the synagogue. Uh, and that's what they eventually did. Thirdly, we see that he came to faith. At the end of the chapter, we find that Jesus met him. I love this. Jesus had heard that he'd been thrown out, that he was an outcast, no longer regarded as a member of the Jewish community of his day, no longer able to uh, go and find a job now that he could see, uh, no longer able to uh, go and worship in the synagogue or the temple. Jesus found him. When you stand up for Jesus Christ, when you follow him, take up your cross daily, deny yourself and follow Christ, he's there. And probably you experience his presence with you more in those occasions than you do uh, in your everyday life because he's there with you through that. And this Jesus, it says here, found him. Jesus went to him. Jesus showed compassion and love to this one. And we find that this man who started off the blind man saying, the man, there's a man called Jesus. That's all he knew to begin with. Then when he was pushed and asked after the miracle, he said, no, he must be a prophet. But finally, he calls him the son of God and he worships him. He worships him. Now, the last thing we find here is uh, that I'd like to point out is the unchanging malice, if you like, hatred, malicious intent of the Pharisees. Their rejection of the message of the miracle meant they, it stirred up animosity and hatred towards Christ and towards any of his followers. So, they're unwilling to accept the miracle. As I've already mentioned, they called the parents uh, to ask whether this was true or false and it was confirmed that it was true. Then they condemned Jesus as a sinner. He could not be a man of God, let alone be accepted before us if he does this sort of thing on the, on, on the Sabbath. This man is not from God, they said for he does not keep the Sabbath in verse 16. And verse 24, 
we know this man is a sinner. They were willfully blind. They chose not to believe, even though they were faced with the truth of it. Seeing did not result in belief. They could see the sign, but they refused to believe. They closed their eyes to the evidence of who Jesus really was. And as there's a favorite, I mean, a big well-known saying that um, there's none so blind as those who will not see. And Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 13, where he said, seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear. And he quotes Isaiah and says, their eyes have been have closed and unless they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. There was an unwillingness to believe. And again, it's the same today. A person can be shown all the evidence but choose not to believe. You know, if you go back to the original creation of humankind, of mankind, God gave us the freedom to choose. We were not made robotic and programmed like the instinct of an animal to do his will. We were created with the freedom to choose to do his will or not, to choose to love him or not, because if you don't have that freedom, you cannot love. If a person says, I love you, but you know that it's just programmed into them, well, it's meaningless. Love is something you choose to do. And how can you love God if it's programmed into you? So God has given humankind this amazing gift of freedom to choose. And with that comes the awesome, incredible, serious issue of, well, if we choose not to believe, if we choose not to love God, then the consequences are real. And so we have this lifetime to live in which we choose, like the Pharisees did, like this blind man did, like the parents did, like the people of his day did, whether we believe in him or we don't. The evidence is there. What have you done? Have you accepted him? Have you chosen to love God? Because if you are faced with Christ as they were, you're faced with God in the flesh and your response to, to him is evidence of your response to God. It is an insight into your genuine place where you stand before God. And that's why Jesus ends up by saying, for judgment, I came into the world that those who do not see me see may see and those who see may become blind. Now we read back in chapter 3 that, that Jesus said he didn't come into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But the very next verse in verse 18 says in chapter 3, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but... Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the Son of God. What, he, what he's saying is there that 
you're faced with Jesus, who is God's son. And if your response to him is to believe, then you are not condemned. You've chosen sides with God. You've trusted him. But if you choose not to believe, you actually have condemned yourself. It'll be ratified on the day of judgment, but you have made your decision. And that means that you have brought that you've made the judgment. The judgment is, is already there. You're condemned already. It's such a, a serious thing to face the reality of who Jesus is and make that choice. But you're free to make that choice when moved by the Spirit of God. And I trust that everyone watching and listening today has made that choice to, to put their faith in Jesus who is the Son of God, who came to die for your sins and rise again, a living Lord and glorious Saviour. And if you haven't done that, you have a choice. Will you believe? Because believing is seeing. And one day you will see him if you believe face to face. May God bless you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is living. And we pray that as we've listened to it this morning, that your spirit may stir our hearts to respond in love and worship for Christ and who he is. And for yourself, our Father, the, the God of creation, who sent your Son to be our Savior. We love you, we worship you, and we thank you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.